Amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. It's good to be with you. Uh, appreciate you fighting the rain and the cool to be here. Uh, I believe the Lord has something uh, good for us. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up uh, to John. John chapter 1 is where we'll be. If you've been here, you know we're in a series called The Real Jesus, where we've been walking through uh, the Gospel of John will be in the Gospel of John for about 40 weeks, and so uh, this year, a lot of this year will be spent in the Gospel of John, and uh, one thing I want you to know is, is John's Gospel is very clear in what uh, the purpose of it is, and that's for us to believe, and so if you're here and you do not believe, uh, we want you to believe, John wants you to believe, God wants you to believe, if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, we want that belief to be strengthened, that faith to be strengthened, and so I believe this morning, uh, I hope it will be. If I could pick uh, one passage and one sermon to preach for the rest of my life, it would be this passage, uh, because I believe we live in a culture uh, that doesn't really have a clear understanding, for the most part, of what the invitation of Jesus is on our life. Um, and so we like to kind of make up uh, how we want to follow Jesus and what his invitation is in a lot of ways. And so today, what we're going to see is, is hopefully gain a clear understanding of what it truly means to follow Jesus, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And I'm praying that God would use it in a powerful way uh, for all of us. I know he has in my life uh, in multiple ways. And so if you got your Bibles, John 1, we're going to start in 35, and you can just follow right along with me. Verse 35 starts this way. It says, the next day, uh, John was there again with two of his disciples. Uh, this, this is John the Baptist, of course. We talked about him last week. Uh, so he's uh, baptizing at the Jordan River here again with two of his disciples. That's the context. Verse 36. And when he saw, when John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. We talked a little bit about this last week. So when John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God, that's a big deal. So for the Jewish uh, culture, uh, they would um, equate lambs with sacrifice. And so uh, in the Old Testament, we see over and over in the Jewish faith, uh, lambs would be sacrificed over and over uh, to make people right with God. That was kind of how if, if we wanted to be right with God, we had to make sacrifices, and lambs were a big part of that. And so when uh, John the Baptist announces not a lamb, but the lamb, uh, that would have a significance for the Jewish people uh, that maybe it doesn't in our life because Jesus is the Lamb of God that was sacrificed uh, for us ultimately. So now we don't have to sacrifice a lamb or any lambs anymore because he was given to us as the Lamb that atoned for our sins, that made us right with uh, God. That's why we celebrate the cross because that's exactly what happened there. So when the two disciples heard John say this, they followed Jesus. And I told you this last week, but I want to remind you again, uh, John the Baptist is an incredible example for every one of us in this room. I mean, he is the example that the Bible gives us of a witness, and we talked a lot about that. And so our lives and the calling that God has placed on our lives as Christians is to be filled with the Spirit, to be witnesses uh, to the ends of the earth. And John gives us an incredible definition uh, for winning in ministry or success in the life of a Christian. And he gives us that when he says, look to Jesus, that's what he told people, follow him, right? And so that's the, the purpose of our life on this earth is to point people to look at Christ and then follow him. And hopefully we can all say, follow us 
as we follow Jesus. That would be a great example for all of us. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? That's a very interesting question. And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with Jesus. It was about four in the afternoon. So most people, uh, commentators would tell you that these two disciples here were Andrew and John, the writer, not John the Baptist, but the apostle John here. And so it's an interesting question uh, that Jesus turns around and sees Andrew and John following him and says, what do y'all want? Right? So it's just kind of confrontational. You don't think of Jesus as being a confrontational person, but what he, he really was and what he was asking in that question was, what are you seeking? What is your motivation? Why are you following me? And their response tells their answer. They said, Rabbi. And so in the Jewish faith, uh, you know, it's very common for Jewish boys to find rabbis. And those rabbis would be teachers that they would follow with their life. And they would learn from them like a teacher almost. And they would try to model their life uh, after them. And so at this point, they see Jesus as a rabbi and a teacher. Of course, he was a lot more than that, and they were about to figure that out, but Jesus then invites them to spend the day with him, which I thought was very uh, cool. Think about just spending the day uh, with Jesus. That would be uh, incredible when he says, come and see. It was an invitation into his life of discipleship, of salvation, and so it's incredible to kind of think about that idea of spending a day with Jesus, and it didn't take them very long to realize, okay, this guy's more than a teacher. Uh, This is the uh, Messiah. And John obviously wrote down the time for us. He said it was about four in the afternoon. Well, why would he say that? Uh, Because he never forgot it. It was that impactful on his life where he could say, hey, it was about four in the afternoon. He invited us to come into his life, and we figured this thing out. Because listen in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. And tell him, we have found the Messiah. So it went from teacher to Messiah really quick there. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. And so I I love this because you see a couple things in that. One, it didn't take Andrew long being with Jesus to see This isn't just a teacher. This guy's God. This is the Lamb. This is the Savior. This is the Christ, uh, the Messiah. Two, we see Andrew's first response uh, to Jesus is to go and tell somebody else what he had just found, which is very, very important because we see this throughout the Bible. When a person meets Jesus, the first response is follow him and go and tell others uh, to do the same. You see, evangelism, which is going out and, and reaching lost people, is the primary evidence of saving faith all throughout uh, the Bible. God rescues us to put us on his rescue team, and that's what he uh, purposes for our lives. The third thing we see here is that Jesus changes Peter's name, and that may not mean a lot to you, but let me explain why it should. So he goes from Simon uh, to Cephas or Peter, right? And those are Cephas and Peter are the same name, just two different languages. And the word Peter or Cephas means rock. And so anytime you see a name change in the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible, it's usually very, very significant and has to do with implications that God has on this person's life in uh, the future. And so the same is true here because we know Peter 
uh, would be the one in the book of Acts that would stand up and kind of be the rock of the church, so to speak, not Christ, but a foundational leader in the building of the church in the book of Acts. And so here's the cool part. Jesus gave Peter that name before he did anything for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus looked at Peter and had a purpose for his life even before he did anything for the kingdom. And I think that has implications for all of us because keep in mind, Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Peter was not a, 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 a political official. He was not a religious man. He was not any of those things. Peter was a fisherman. Now, I know when you think fisherman, you're thinking uh, like bass masters, nice boat, nice truck. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about maybe more like the deadliest catch type fisherman, you know, the type of people that you really wouldn't want your kids to be around very much. And so that just dirty, just kind of living on a boat most of the time. This is a commercial fisherman in Peter that we get. It's an unlikely person that Jesus would choose. He's an ordinary man. He's a untrained, unschooled uh, person. And I say all that to say, never underestimate what God can do in and through your life. Because it's a lot, a lot less about you and a lot more about the Spirit of God at work in your life. And we need to understand this, that Jesus, when he came and chose his people, his, his kind of dream team, so to speak, he didn't go to the people that you thought he would go to. Because if he would have went to the talented, the upper escalon of people in that society, it would have been more about who they were than it was about who he is. And Jesus specializes in taking ordinary people and doing incredible things with them. And the same is true in Peter's life, and the same is true today for you and me. Verse 40, 43, I love this encounter. Listen, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Again, we see this clear invitation of Jesus is to follow me, right? That's his, that's his words, not mine. Verse 44, and then Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I love this because how quickly the first thing we see, not only that Andrew did, but Philip, the first thing Philip did was go and tell somebody that he had found the Messiah. Again, we see the evidence that when we follow Jesus, one of the primary evidences that we're following Christ is we go and tell others about Jesus. Now listen to Nathaniel. This is the encounter I want you to think about. Verse 46, Nathaniel said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Now you got to understand, Nazareth is a pretty uh, unlikely place for the Savior of the world to come from, which just shows the humility of Christ. You know, when you think of Nazareth, it's kind of a country, uh, unknown you know, just kind of city that's out there that, you know, you you'd really don't go visit, but it's kind of there. You know, I always think, I, I, you know, people get offended when I talk about this, but you, you think about somewhere like Santa Claus, right? It's just kind of an interesting place, you know, don't know a lot of people from there. Cedar Crossing, like Cobbtown, you got New Branch, uh, Johnson's Corner, all these places out there that you know they're out there, but for no reason are you going out there to see. I mean, these people, we don't know, Oak Park, like what do they do over there? I don't know, you know? Um, and so, you know, you hear things about what they do out there, but, you, you know, you just don't go. And so that's kind of the idea of Nazareth. Like, would somebody good come from Nazareth is what uh, Nathaniel is saying, but he doesn't understand uh, that Jesus is. And so we see this natural doubt and unbelief in Nathaniel. but I want you to listen to how Jesus approaches it. Come and see, said Philip. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Okay, so you gotta know a little bit about the Bible to understand what's happening here. So this is a quote from the book of Genesis about a guy in the Bible named Jacob. And so uh, what you're seeing happening here is it's kind of weird for Jesus to come out of the gate with that quote, but there's something deeper going on. Listen, verse 48. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. So why would Nathaniel ask, how do you know me? So obviously he thinks Jesus is confronting him about this idea of Jacob. And so how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under, uh, still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So Jesus is reading his mail a little bit right here. He's saying, hey, I saw you before any of this. Well, he's doing it to reveal himself as God. Verse 49, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So very quickly it went from doubt, unbelief to this is our God. And Jesus said, verse 50, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Reading his mail again. And then he says, but you will see greater things than that. Basically, Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. Verse 51, he then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that's, again, an interesting quote. It's back to the story of Jacob in Genesis. And so, Jesus, there's something going on with this story of Jacob in this man's life. And so, most commentators believe that, uh, basically, Nathaniel was under the fig tree with his Bible open reading, or the Old Testament, reading the story of Jacob. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going to him through his word to basically reveal that he is a God. And I love that because I love this encounter because it's so personal. And, and how many of you guys know that we have a personal God? The whole idea of Jesus coming from heaven to earth to be in the world with us means that he doesn't want to be far off. He wants to be known. He wants to be in relationship with you and with me. And so we find this and we see it in the life of Nathaniel uh, that Nate comes to, I'm gonna call him Nate, Nate comes to Jesus in doubt and unbelief and instead of uh, being like, hey, who are you? You're, you're doubting the son of God? Jesus, you know, it seems like Jesus would be like, I'm Jesus. What are you talking about? You don't believe. Like, what the heck? And so, but he doesn't respond that way. Like, he literally meets uh, Nate exactly where he is and loves him and meets him there and then reveals himself as God in a way that Nathaniel can understand exactly what he is talking about. And the reason I love this is because it's an incredible picture of the gospel for all of us. I mean, it's exactly how Jesus works in the Bible. It's exactly how he works now. Jesus meets people exactly where they are. You know, he's not looking for a clean version of yourself. And this is where the church has gotten it wrong in a lot of places. And people, naturally, when they hear the word church, they feel a pressure to come and bring the best version of themselves to church. But the Bible teaches Jesus isn't looking for the best version of yourself. Jesus wants the real you, the jacked up, ugly, mean, that type of person, the person that's far from God, the one that's honest about who they truly are, and Jesus wants to meet you exactly where you are. Because when Jesus meets that person, the real person, and you experience his grace and you realize that Jesus died not for the cleaned up version of yourself, but yet while you were a sinner, while you were far from God, Christ came and died, that begins to do something in your heart that the cleaned up thing doesn't do. And we begin to show people the same grace that are far from God 
that God showed us. It's until we experience that grace in the real version of Jesus, real version of ourselves, that we can actually extend the gospel grace uh, to others. And so Jesus meets us exactly where we are. He knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. And the reality is he still loves us. And he pursues us. And he steps towards us. And he invites us all into something greater. I love the way Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says it this way. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. And this is exactly what we see when we study encounters between Jesus and individuals in the Bible. I mean, it's, if you ever want to know how to talk to somebody about the Lord, the best place to learn how to do it is through Christ. What did he do? How did he? And we see this. Uh, John's going to show us all of this. Nicodemus, woman at the well, uh, the man who had the demon. I mean, over and over, we're going to see Jesus literally engage people far from God, and how he does it is truly spectacular. He meets them all differently but meets them all exactly where they are with incredible grace and truth and offers them life, and they usually receive it. And Jesus was just so personal, and that's what I love about him. It's when that gospel becomes personal to us that it begins to impact us in a big, big way. So today, here's what I want to do, a little bit shorter passage, so I got a little more time to teach, uh, teach it a little, little deeper. And so I want to point three things out to you, and I want to start with this. Number one, the invitation of Jesus. Again, uh, we see the invitation of Christ very clearly in this passage. And it's very important uh, because we live in a culture where the invitation of Jesus has largely been misunderstood and is largely very shallow. And, and that's the invitation of Jesus is anything but unclear and, 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 and shallow. It, it's very, very deep and it's very, very important that we understand. For most people, it's the invitation of Jesus is about coming and praying a prayer to an impersonal God so that you can have fire insurance not to go to hell. That's basically what it is, and 90% of the people where we live, that's exactly what their experience with salvation and following Jesus is all about. But here, we see Jesus and we see his invitation in a much deeper and more clear uh, way than ever before. He tells us that his invitation is about seeing him for who he is, believing in him, and following him as, as, as our Savior and as our Lord. It involves commitment. It involves surrendering our lives, turning from our old life, and adopting and embracing this new way of life that he has for us. Simply put, it's an invitation to three things. One, come and see. Two, to follow Jesus. And three, to go and tell. And I want to talk about each of them a little bit more. So first, letter A is come and see. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to come and see. And I love this, that our God, he, he's, he's so authentic that he invites us and says, hey, I'm not just going to tell you. You can come into my life and see that I am exactly who I say I am. And it's an invitation to come and see the truth about who he is. It's an invitation into a relationship. He says, come to me, be with me, live with me, come into a relationship with me. It's an invitation to see him and believe that he is exactly who he said he was. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He literally invited people into every aspect of his life. And this is what I love about him. No other God in any other religion does this. 
Every other God stays distant and tells you what to do if you want to have a chance to even see him or be with him where he is. But our God came from heaven to earth to show us and to reveal himself in a tangible, real way. He wasn't hiding anything. He was an open book. He didn't have secrets. He was exactly who he said he was. He did exactly what he said that he would do. And when we see this and we see his credibility and his authenticity, the only right response to Jesus is to believe him and to follow him. And historically, it's, it's there, and it's incredible to read the Bible and the book of John specifically to see this. And I want to show you what it does in our lives when we do this. Listen to the life of Peter. This is what Peter says in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69. And so uh, it didn't take Jesus very long in his ministry to develop a following. You know what I mean? I mean, he was kind of a superstar. He was doing supernatural things. There was a lot of things going on. And so he, he kind of gathered a crowd. But here's the thing that you come to realize about Jesus. Some of his teaching was pretty difficult. And some of the times he would preach difficult things and tell people they had to leave their sinful lifestyle and turn to him, they wouldn't like it, and they would begin to turn away. And one of these instances is in John 6. And so it says Jesus had gathered a crowd, and verse 66 says, from this time many of his disciples uh, turned back. So after this message, uh, a lot of them had turned back and they no longer followed him. And then he looks at the 12. These are his disciples, his people, his followers, and he says this. Do you want to leave too? Do you want to go with them? Do you want to leave the same way all these other people are doing? And Simon Peter looks at him, and I want you to think about what he says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where should we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Messiah, the Holy One of God. And so you see this, even in the difficult times of the life of the disciples, it was their belief and their, the proof that Jesus was who he said he was that kept them following him, even when it didn't feel good. And so I always say it this way, our belief has to go deeper than our feelings. Like if you wake up in the morning and you say, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus today because I feel like following him. That's awesome. But there are going to be days that you wake up and you feel the opposite. I want to do what I want to do today. But until our faith goes deeper than our feelings, it's not real faith. Because our emotions are deceiving. They'll take us a ton of different directions. But when we begin to build our faith, as Jesus would say, on the word of God, on the truth about God, it's like a rock that when the winds come and the, and the flood comes, it, it stands because our faith is founded on the rock. And Peter had experienced something so great in following Jesus and seeing his life and believing in him that no matter what happened on this earth, he was not going to turn away or he was not going to turn to something else or go anywhere else. And he said, like, Jesus, where else would I go? Like, you're, you're the guy. Like, you're God. You're my creator. I'm created by you for you. Why would I go to something else and look for something that I can only find in you? And you say, Billy, well, that sounds simple. Well, it is simple. And I'm telling you, if you can begin to wrap your mind around the fact that you are created by God for God, and there's a hole in your heart that only a relationship with God, only obedience to God, only salvation by God, and, and growth in your relationship with God can feel, then the world starts to get pretty black and white. 
And we can begin to see that I don't need to try to replace this hole in my heart with things other than Jesus because they're never going to fulfill it. And so it begins to be very black and white. And so you say, well, Billy, what was it uh, that, that kept Peter so close? Well, he knew Jesus was God. He knew he was created by God and for God. And I think his soul had found this deep rest in a relationship with Jesus and in the purpose that God had for his life that he was, he was full. Like he wasn't hungry for other things. You know what I mean? Like if, if we can find our appetite filled in something, we don't look to eat other stuff, if that makes sense. It's the same way with Christ. When he fills our soul and fills us up, we don't look to other things. And I believe uh, this is exactly what happens when we come to Jesus. There's a parable that Jesus told all the time uh, about a, a guy who found a treasure in a field. Anybody know that parable? And, and so what Jesus does is he, he tells this parable about a guy that went to this field and he found a treasure. And it says the treasure was so great, it was worth so much to him, that in his joy, listen, in his joy, he went back and he sold everything he had. Everything, I'm talking, it says everything, meaning everything, all of his cars, house, everything he had worth anything, he sold it to go and buy this field so that he could have this treasure because the treasure was worth more than anything else in his life. And this is exactly what I believe Peter found when he began to follow Christ, is a treasure that nothing in this world compared to. And that's why he was so focused on following Jesus and that's why he wasn't looking to other things. Now, he wasn't perfect, but he had, that, he had that tenacity about him when it came to following the Lord. Secondly, the invitation of Jesus is an invitation to follow him, not just to come and see and see that he is who he says he is, but also to follow him. And this is kind of foreign language in our culture, but if you uh, visited the Jewish culture, you know anything about it, uh, you know, it was very normal for a Jewish boy to choose a rabbi. I mean, they pretty much had to. As a teenager, you would choose a rabbi uh, to learn from and to follow and to, 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 to really spend the majority of your life uh, with in a lot of ways. And in choosing to follow a rabbi, what you were essentially saying is that this guy is my teacher. Uh, I'm going to learn from him and become like him. Uh, it's kind of a teacher and an apprentice or a teacher and a student uh, type relationship. I'll give you an example. So how many of you guys know that John and, and James were brothers in the Bible, and they were both fishermen, and they were on a boat with their dad when John called them, or when Jesus called them? Well, when Jesus called them to come and follow him, they left the boat with their dad to go and follow Jesus. And I've always read that story, and I've been like, man, what did he feel like as a father? You know what I mean? Like, my, my, I mean, obviously now I see it as a Christian. I'm like, well, I would want Will to follow nobody else. Like, go, yeah, absolutely. But then, I mean, we didn't know that Jesus was who he says he was. Surely he didn't at that point. And so, I mean, John's dad's just out here in a boat, and his two boys are on the shore, like, going with him. But that's the idea of what it means to follow a rabbi. Like, you're entrusting these children, these students, to a person to teach them not only the way to think, but how to live their lives. And so when these uh, disciples would, would choose to follow him uh, as a rabbi, that's exactly what they're doing. Their invitation was to turn away from their old life. They would have given up fishing, and they would have embraced a new way of life, a new purpose, a new direction, uh, a new way of life. And in becoming a disciple of Jesus, these guys were committing their lives to follow him. 
Like to spend time with him, to be with him, to learn from him, to become like him and seek to live the same way that Jesus lived. And this is what I like to call life-on-life discipleship. This is the best way for us to grow as a Christian, and it truly is transformational. And it's it's when we do life, uh, if you think about your relationship with God in any other way than doing life with him, you're thinking about it the wrong way. And not only him, but doing life with other believers, that's the way God's designed for us to grow. And in our culture, we really, really, really miss this. And the church has really, really missed this in a lot of ways. Because what we do in the church, not just our church, but the big C church, is we've divorced the idea of being a Christian from following Jesus, right? And so there's, there's this, this segment of, of Christianity where you can be a Christian and you do not really have to leave your old life to follow Jesus. And it sounds great. And it, it, it promises a lot. It's like, man, you don't have to change that much. You can just kind of keep doing your thing and not go to hell. That, yeah, sign me up. That's great. The problem is, is it's unbiblical. Like nowhere in the Bible do you see that type of Christianity. And that's what we see here so clearly is that it's this idea of, uh, of being a Christian cannot be divorced from following Jesus. And there's many people in this world that call themselves Christians and they have no intention of leaving their old lives. Uh, they have no intention of learning from or becoming like Christ. They have no intention of embracing the mission of God to make disciples of all nations. And this type of fake Christianity is sweeping through our country in churches all over the place. And people are buying into it because it's cheap. It doesn't cost you anything. But the problem is, is it overpromises and underdelivers. Like abundant life for us is found when we see Christ, believe Christ, and follow him wholeheartedly. Life is found when we lay our lives down. Like that's the principle of Christianity. And when we lose this, literally we lose everything because there's no transformation without discipleship. There's no transformation without following Jesus because as we follow Jesus, we're transformed by him. As we follow him, we come to know him deeply, which is where our joy is made complete in fellowship with him. As we follow Jesus, our lives begin to reflect him, which is the ultimate purpose that he has for our life, is that we would be uh, uh, ambassadors, that we would be image bearers of who he is into the world through the power of the Spirit at work in us. And at no point in the Bible do we ever see Christianity reduced down to a meaningless prayer that we pray or a ticket to heaven or an invitation to just come and, and sit and listen to a preacher. Like none of that is in the Bible. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to see him for who he is and follow him wholeheartedly. And thirdly, we see that the invitation of Jesus also involves going and telling Going and telling. And Jesus says it very clearly in Matthew 4, 19, when he has this same invitation to his disciples. He says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for men. And so it's this imagery of for us to come to Christ in relationship with him, for us to live our life following him as our Savior and our teacher and our, 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 our Lord, then automatically what happens is he begins to send us out which is where we get the word mission, 
we begin to live on mission to connect other people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which is a great mission statement for a church, by the way. We should adopt that. Oh, we already have that as a mission statement. And so the purpose of us as a church is to do what Christ asked us to do, which is to go out and connect people to a growing relationship with Christ. And notice verse 41. The first thing Andrew did when he met Christ and began to follow him was what? Went and told Peter. And then right after that, the first thing Philip did when he met Christ and began to follow him was go and tell Nathaniel. And so it, it literally is like clockwork. Anytime in Scripture that you see someone meet Christ, for the most part, they go immediately and tell. Even when Jesus would say, hey, don't tell anybody what just happened. Hey, don't tell anybody what I just did for you. I mean like clockwork. They would go straight to him. And I'm always like, man, the first thing they did was disobey Christ. But it's like when God does something in our hearts, we can't help but share it because what he does is so incredible. It, it is incredible when we begin to think about that. It's the number one evidence of saving faith is evangelism. It always has been and always will be. When we meet Jesus, we want others to meet him too, especially when we understand the magnitude of what he's done for us and who he is. So let me ask you just a few questions to close out this point on the invitation of Jesus. The first one is this. Have you received the real invitation of Christ? Like we can spend our whole life in the church and never understand what it truly means to follow Jesus. And so is the, is the invitation that you responded to an invitation to come see the truth about Christ, to devote your life to studying the truth about Christ? Is the invitation that you responded to uh, an invitation to leave your old life to, uh, to embrace this new life that Christ has for you? And is this invitation that you responded to an invitation to go and be a part of God's mission to make disciples of all nations. And if that's not the invitation that you responded to, you didn't respond to the invitation of Christ. And so we must search our hearts and search our lives to figure out, am I truly following Jesus or have I bought into a fake Christianity that somebody else has tried to convince me of? Because when we look in the Bible, it is so, so clear that what Christ is inviting us into. Are you walking in relationship with him, telling people about him? Uh, the idea, and I, I love a guy, Kyle Ottoman, who's a pastor up in Kentucky, he wrote a book called Fan or Follower. And the whole premise of the book is, are you a true follower of Christ or are you just a fan of Jesus? Because a lot of people live their life as a fan of Christ and never truly follow him. Listen to what he says. He says, the biggest threat to the church today are fans who call themselves Christians but they aren't actually interested in following Jesus. They wanna be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close to him that it requires anything from them. Fans don't mind Jesus doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants to do a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking they just need a little tune-up, but Jesus is thinking you need a complete overhaul. Fans think a little makeup will be fine, but Jesus is thinking, you need a complete makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. And so don't be a fan. Be a follower of Christ. 
The second thing I think I see in this scripture that, that's really powerful for all of us is, is this personal encounter that happens. And you can't miss it because it's absolutely incredible. It's an encounter between Jesus and Nathaniel. You know, we kind of get this uh, quick bypass with all the other disciples where it's like, come and follow me, come and follow me. But with Nathaniel, it goes into a little bit more uh, depth in this. And what happens is Jesus sees Nathaniel, and Nathaniel has some unbelief and some doubt issues. He doesn't really believe that anything good can come out of Nazareth. He definitely don't believe that the Savior of the world would come from there. And he says it. Can anything good come from uh, Nazareth? And then Jesus begins to reveal himself, and he begins to read his mail. And he says, hey, I saw you under the fig tree. Also, by the way, I saw you reading the story of Jacob. And what we see in this moment is that Jesus personally moves towards uh, Nathaniel in his doubt and in his unbelief and reveals himself as God and then invites him into his greater story. And he says, you think this is great. You hadn't seen anything yet. And what I want you to know today is that the same is true for us, that Jesus sees us exactly where we are in our unbelief, in our doubt, in our brokenness, in whatever it is when you think about God in your mind that comes up. God sees us in that moment. He knows everything. He knows you, everything about you, the good things about you, the bad things about you, the ugly things, all the things that you think he doesn't or don't want him to know, Jesus knows you. And the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't move away from you. He doesn't run from you. He's not scared of your mess. He's not scared of your sin. He actually came from heaven to earth for that. And he loves you. And he died for you. And he lived the life that you and I could never live. And he's inviting us into this relationship to follow him and to be transformed by him. And no person in the history of the world has ever met him, followed him, and stayed the same. Nobody, not one person in the entire Bible that committed their life to follow Jesus stayed the same. It's a spiritual impossibility. And so the question for our life when we look at Nathaniel is, have we had a personal encounter with Jesus the way Nathaniel did? Now understand, like, Jesus isn't on earth anymore. And you say, Billy, how, if he's not on earth, how can I have a personal encounter with him? Well, here's what I tell you. This is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God empowers the Word of God and, and just like today, as we're studying the life of Nathaniel, and we're studying about how he met Nathaniel where he was, what the Spirit of God does is empower that word to begin to move Christ toward you. And what happens is it begins to illuminate some things in you, firstly, that, that you and I are sinners, and that we've chosen a life of rebellion against God, and we've moved away from him, and we began living for ourselves. and because of that, we deserve to be punished by God. We're enemies of God. But instead of killing us and punishing us, God sent his son Christ for us in our sin. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin and, Jesus, and God put Jesus on a cross and he crushed him for our sin. He took on the wrath of God for you and I. And, and where it gets personal is this. Some of us know that message, but there's never been an exchange that happened in that moment. We've never seen, we've never taken Jesus off the cross and said, no, it was me on the cross with Jesus. It was, I was the reason that he was up there. It was my sin that crushed Jesus. And that's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God takes the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, and makes it personal in our life. And when it gets personal, 
And when we see that it was my sin, it was me that was on the cross, it was God's punishment due me that was poured out on Christ, and he did it, not he did it when I was an enemy of God, that it begins to stir in our hearts. And it begins to do something in our hearts, and it begins to change us from the inside out. And, 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 and people describe it like this. It, it does something. It cuts us to the heart and draws us into the love of God, where we begin to be drawn into God so much that all these things that the world offers us begin to be strangely dim. And we say, I don't want that anymore. I want that. I want to be with him. He loves me that much. I want to follow him. He's got a plan for my life. I want to follow him. He did this for me. I want to follow him. That's, that's the purpose of a personal encounter with Jesus. And, and, and here's the thing. There's a big difference in knowing something about God and actually tasting the goodness of God. You know, like I can sit up here and I can, I can describe to you until you're blue in the face uh, how good of a steak that I can cook for you. you know, and, and I could probably make you hungry and make myself hungry. But when you bite into a steak, uh, especially when it's cooked medium, medium rare, uh, you know, season right, it, it's, it's just thick, about an inch and a quarter filet, beef tenderloin. When you bite into it and you taste it, there's something different about that moment than when I tell you about it. It's the same thing with the gospel. Is I can tell you over and over again, God loves you, he died for you, he did all this stuff, but when it begins to be personal and the Spirit of God does something in your heart through it, it literally bursts alive inside of you and it changes you forever. And so I'm asking you, have you ever had that encounter with Christ? I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, do you read your Bible? I'm asking, have you had a personal encounter with Jesus when the Spirit of God burst alive in your life, the message of God, and it caused change in your life, so much so that you turned from you and you began to live for God? If that moment hasn't happened, then you have not met Christ. And today is the day that God wants to meet you where you are. And all it takes is seeing him for who he is seeing him for what he's done, and surrendering and laying down and saying, God, that's what I want. That's what I want. Would you do that today? And then the third thing, and I want to close with this illustration because I think it's important for us to understand this. And when we read through, you may have missed this, but I want to explain it. You know, when he gets to the end of the passage in verse 51, you'll notice he quotes from the story of Jacob, and he quotes, uh, he quotes but he switches the words, and this is Jesus. He can do that. Uh, so he says, uh, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And now that's different than when he says it in Genesis 28. Jacob had a dream. This is 28, 12 in Genesis. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. So when Jacob looked, there was a ladder, a stairway that went from heaven to earth. This was a dream. And its top was reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. But if you notice in the book of John, Jesus changes the language and he says, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a staircase, but on the Son of Man. What, what is he doing? What is he saying right there? It's important that you understand what he's doing. He's basically saying is there's not a stairway to heaven. Jesus came to be the ladder and the stairway to heaven. That's what he is, is he is the ladder to heaven. And I want to show you this because I think it's important that you understand exactly what I'm talking about. So I brought my handy-dandy ladder, and we live in a culture that's all about climbing the ladder. It really is. I mean, everything in this world will tell you you need to do more and do better if you want to work your way up. And the, that, that makes sense to us as people. 
Uh, but the bad thing is it's terrible theology because it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we haven't bought into it. I bought into it. You guys have probably bought into it at times of your life. Some of you guys have never thought religion to be anything other than that. And when you think about Christianity, this is how you think about it. So you think it's about climbing rungs or climbing a ladder. And if I can get to the top, then God's going to love me or God's going to accept me or God's going to use me. And so your life is all about trying to be a good person. And so that's the first rung. It's just like, man, if I could just be a good person, if I could just do more good than I do bad, man, I could get closer to God. And we sit here and we, we work to be a good person and we just exhaust ourselves over and over trying to be a good person. And then what we say is, okay, well, man, I feel like I'm a pretty good person, so now I think I'm worthy to go to church. So next step is I'll go to church. Man, now God, God's really starting to love me, you know, and, and I really think he, I'm, I'm climbing, I'm getting closer to him. Man, if I could just get a little bit closer, he's gonna love me and he is gonna use me. And then the next one is, Man, if I could just stop drinking, or if I could just stop cussing, you know, that'd be great. At least stop cussing around my kids, right? If I could just do that, man, that God would love me. If I could just live this life of, of, of you know, freedom from, from those things, and you climb up that one. And it's like, okay, I've gotten there. Maybe I've, I've done good with this. So now if I could just start reading my Bible consistently, you know, so all right, let me read my Bible consistently. And so you just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And you say, okay, well, maybe I'll start serving in the church or maybe I'll give some money to somebody in need or start helping people. And, and we just keep climbing and climbing and climbing as if we can climb to Christ. But the only problem with this is we can never do enough to get to Christ. And, and, the, and the good news of the gospel and the good news about our God is literally every other God, every other religion says climb the ladder. And the problem is you never know if you can get there. And you spend your life working and working and working and you never have any assurance that you can get to God. But the God of the Bible, instead of asking us to climb the ladder, he actually came down the ladder. And Jesus came from heaven to earth as a stairway, as a, as a ladder for us so that through faith in him now, we go to the top of the ladder. He puts us on, our, on his back and carries us to the top of the ladder through faith where now we have free access to God. We have access to eternity. We have eternal life found in him, not because we've done anything, but because we've trusted in the one who did everything. And this is the good news of the gospel. And for many of us in this room, we've, we've missed it. We've missed it. We've lived our life. Maybe we've been raised in the Catholic church or we've been raised in some sort of religion in our house and we've just been trying to clean this, clean this life up and do enough good that we uh, outweigh the bad in our life. And Jesus is looking down and saying, what are you doing? There's no freedom in that. Like you're, you're missing. You're missing it. Like when you look at Jesus and we see the fact that he came from heaven to earth, to live the life that you and I could never live and die the death that you and I deserve to die so that through faith in him, we can now be reconciled to God, the very thing that we were created for. All the attention, all the boast in that is Christ. And so maybe you're in this room today and when you think about this clear invitation that Jesus has given us today, this invitation to come and see, this invitation to follow him, this invitation to be used by him to go and tell others. This personal encounter. 
and this ladder that we've been given to get to God through faith in Christ. And maybe you're in the room and you say, Billy, I've, I've missed it. And I tell you, today is the day that God wants to break through in your life. And listen, we've been praying for you. I've been fasting for you. And I've been praying that God would change your life and that you would begin to live in the freedom that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you instead of trying to earn your way to God. And that God would begin to do a work in your heart. So if you're in this room right now, everybody bowing your heads, and you'd say, Billy, that's me. I've missed it. I've missed it. I want God to do a work in my life, but I've been trying to do it on my own. And this morning, you say, I'm ready. I want to turn to the Lord. He's, he's working on my heart. And this morning, I want to give my life to him. Is that anybody in the room? You lift your hand right where you are and say, Billy, that's me. Amen. Anybody else? You say, Billy, that's me. That's me. Amen. Steve. Anybody else? I'll give you a minute. Raise it high. You say, me. That's me. So, Father, I pray right now, God, for these young men and these young women, God, that you would meet them exactly where they are with your grace, and God, you would explode inside of them, and God, that they uh, would begin to follow you, and God, we as a church would surround them. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room today that are Christians, God, the people in the room that, man, they've come to Christ, but we don't just come to Christ once. Lord, our whole life, we're so prone to wonder and to lose focus and be distracted, but God, your invitation is just to come. So God, I know there's a lot of weary souls in this room, a lot of wandering souls in this room. Well, would you draw them back this morning to the simplicity of the invitation that you've given us? And God, would you begin to use us as a church to make disciples of all nations? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?